0: This is Dialogue, a podcast of the Lenten Preaching Series recorded live at Calvary Episcopal Church in Memphis. I am Scott Walters, Rector of Calvary Church. And our guests tonight are two local favorites at Calvary's Lenten Preaching Series. The Reverend Sam Title is newer to LPS, as we call it. He's a Unitarian Universalist minister who served at Church of the River in Memphis since 2017. In a previous life, Sam was a slam poet. And I'm not gonna try to explain what that is because I think it's probably more interesting just whatever image you have in your mind of what a slam poet is. But I think it's safe to say that he does bring a bit of a punk sensibility to his preaching and his ministry, but one that's beautiful and life-giving. Rabbi Micah Greenstein, senior rabbi at Temple Israel where he served for 30 years.
1: Since before Sam was born.
0: Yeah, that's right. (laughs) I was four, thank you. At a fantastic, a beautiful celebration of Micah's 30th anniversary that Ardell and I attended this year, I was really especially delighted to hear a story about when Micah preached at the National Cathedral in Washington, and uh, a Calvary member was there on the front row, apparently, and she was asked, why did you come all this way to hear Micah Greenstein? You can hear him in Memphis. And she said, well, he's my rabbi, too. Oh, a lot of us feel that way. Earlier today, these two guys, did something that may be unprecedented in the 99 years of Lenten preaching series. I didn't look it up, I'd rather just assume it is. They preached together. They preached a dialogic sermon here, which is terrifying to most preachers, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. It was a lovely day, and so welcome to you both. Welcome to you both. Glad to be here. So as we wade into this conversation, I know both of you pretty well, but I'd still like to just wade into it with a little bit of your stories as how you got into this This clergy vocation. I think both of you came from clergy families. I'm curious if that was an impediment or an enticement.
2: (laughs) We grew up 10 minutes apart from each other. We did, yeah. Marblehead, Massachusetts and Peabody, Massachusetts. Peabody. It's Peabody. They mispronounced the hotel here. It's Peabody Mass. (laughs) And, you know, when I lived there, I would have immediately known to say Peabody, but I've lived in Memphis for so long now that now I've started saying Peabody again. It's terrible. But we survived being preacher's kids. What was your experience as uh, the son of a minister? My wife is also a minister's kid. And my theory is there's two kinds of minister's kid. There's the, the, the minister's kid who was a perfect angel all the time. And there's the hellraiser. And my wife grew up as, as the former, and I grew up as, as the latter. <laughs> Someone, I'm trying to remember who, I think it was Chris Rock, said growing up with a minister is like watching the magician stuffing the rabbit into the hat every morning. So, so, you know, you you, you go to church, you go to worship, and you know how all the tricks work. It's It's not magic in the same way. And so ministry is the way that I was most comfortable relating to faithfulness. Ministry is always how faithfulness was demonstrated to me. You know, our religious educators are our parents, right? And so what I saw of a religious life was embodied in ministry.
0: So it wasn't this secret trick. You actually saw the rabbit being stuffed into the hat, but it didn't bother you. No, it's, it still I, was authentic. It was still something—a valid way of being yeah. In the world.
2: I, I think it's important that the rabbit go into the hat, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I, I think it's important that we do this. And <laughs> this is uh, all
0: code. You have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> it's clergy code.
2: Yeah, it, it, even knowing how the sausage gets made at churches, I, I think I, I was still excited to, to get into it, which has uh, been helpful. Well, I was pre-med, you? pre-law, pre-life. As I just told my Rhodes College students who were
1: intimidated by their class with me, I said, but you have passed second semester organic chemistry. I ended my pre-med career before I received my grade in that subject. (laughs) And my economics advisor, who was a devout Christian, knew that I was interested in the rabbinate, but then not. I was going to go into government after exploring these other possibilities. And I went to the Kennedy School of Government and all my professors, or many of them, happened to be Jewish and moved me towards this path. And my father, who was my best friend, I still don't know how he did it. He was a Renaissance rabbi. He made the New Metropolitan Opera Chorus in New York City, but knew that there wasn't a guaranteed career in the chorus of the New York Met. So he became a rabbi and a cantor, but as he said, he only got paid for one job. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he also earned a PhD in religious studies at at Ohio State. But there's one story though that happened in Massachusetts where I was born and where Sam grew up that, that, that has really conditioned me as a rabbi when he was the young youth rabbi at his congregation it was a Thursday evening I believe and there was a youth conclave that weekend and he saw the light on in the study of his senior rabbi Rabbi Snyder you didn't call him Scott at the time <laughs> and my dad was worried so he went into Rabbi Snyder's study and he said um are you okay and Rabbi Snyder said sit down Howard And he said, you have a lot of potential. You're going to be a fine rabbi, but let me tell you something. I'm married to this congregation, and if you want to be the star that you're destined to be, you need to be married to it too. That's why I'm here on a Thursday night. My dad told me that story because from that moment, he decided he would always be devoted to his congregation Um, but never married to it. And that stayed with me. And after my dad asked me if I wanted to see a psychiatrist before going into the family business, (laughs) um, it all ended up great because I keep that story with me. That's powerful. Yeah, what about you? I mean, because having children too, I mean, we we each have sons and daughters.
0: Not yet. I don't have daughters. You mean about wondering... Watching the hat-stuffing thing or watching yeah, yeah. What they experience words, of it? Uh... I think the question of marriage or devotion or uh, prior promises is really uh, crucial in this line of work to, to get sorted out. Ardell and I were married when we went to seminary and we had two kids. And the strange thing, and the interesting thing that might be related to what you're talking about is that all of the single seminarians had no idea how... You had a family, and you got your kids to school, and you packed their lunch. and I did all this stuff, and then still did your schoolwork, but the truth is that it, it, it structured your time, and it kind of aligned your, your priorities, and, and it should, at least. It did for us, and really helped with the school as well. The structure, it wasn't a zero-sum game. But it was important for us to ask that question. So where are your primary commitments, and, and is it even good for the congregation for you to be married to them rather than the person you actually promised uh, fidelity to in a, in a different way. I, I...
2: And it's a thing we always struggle with, right? Like every clergy person has seasons where they get a little too married to their congregation. No matter how long you've been doing it and how hard you try to not do that, it's a, it's a, there's, there's ebb and flow to it.
0: Yeah, for sure.
2: But I think our kids are the gut check. Um, maybe Gideon, yeah. not yet, although
1: he's slapping you, I hear, to wake up <laughs> in the morning. He's very young, right? He's, he's 25, old. yeah. <laughs> he's one and a half. <laughs> no, if I'm preaching at the high holidays and the sanctuary is full of temple, my son uh, is the gut check, meaning he knows that I'm still his dad, even as I'm sincere in my role. In the, is that the lectern and not the pulpit? I know there's a test. Yeah, yeah
0: okay. well done. Yeah. No thanks. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, I think the spouse and the kids keep us grounded. Yeah. Ideally.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But that's my story. Yours? Anything else? The
2: mom? Uh, she was an amazing she, UU minister. She was an amazing UU minister. She was, she was one of the best. One of the things that I, I, I say is, uh, my preaching professor said is, you know, there's things that are necessary, they're not necessary, but really helpful to be a good preacher, and one of them is you have to have grown up hearing good preaching. And so uh, I feel really lucky that my, uh, uh, you know, I heard, got to grow up hearing great preaching from, and, it, you know, it was great that it was from my mom. Same.
1: My dad said to me that <clears throat> if you haven't struck oil in 18 minutes, stop boring. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, maybe preaching is a good, let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about preaching and your approach to that. So that's one part of the clergy life, but it's one that during Lenten preaching series we're attending to. It's also something that's communal. It happens in the context of these other relationships that are ongoing and, and gone throughout life and the congregation and family and what. It's also intensely private. There's a private part that's really reflective. That's if you're, a, if you're an introvert, that's where you get fed in the profession, you know. You guys kind of broke that today. Talk about preaching and how you were drawn into that part of your vocation.
2: So, you know, I, I, yeah, I was a slam poet for a while um, before I was a minister. And it's this interesting thing that people ask, you know, do you miss being a slam poet? And the answer is no, that no, I, I was trying to preach. The act of preaching is always what I was going for, and I didn't have, I just didn't realize that that's what I was trying to do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a slam poem is, by definition, three minutes long. So you learn an economy of language. At to stop boring if... If only slam poets would stop boring when it wasn't working. (laughs) They often don't. They they just stay. Yeah, and preaching is, I, I like what you said about it being connective and it being a communal experience. It is a moment that you can share. I don't give out copies of my sermons ever. People have asked me if they can have the transcript and I always say no. And part of it is that I write it sort of in a weird, you know, almost like it were a slam poem, like I write it sort of down the page in this way that's really easy for me to read, but no one would really be able to read But I also really love the idea that a sermon is a thing that happens in a moment in time and it's this thing that we all shared and it's okay to have it just be a thing that happened once in our life and then we let it go. and and we don't have to own it, and we don't have to keep it. I'm not just saying this
1: because you're my colleagues and friends, but you're, you're great preachers too, who I think share with me the person in the back of this sanctuary has a right to ask the question at every sermon. And I always live in holy, not fear, but... I'm conscious of the question. I always imagine the person in the back and I see her asking the question as I'm preaching, so what? (laughs) That so many of you have gotten dressed to come hear this talk. And I think the irony of preaching is that it's either rabbinocentric or the pulpit is so high But what really matters is what's going on with them out there and not up here. And I don't know about the UU Episcopal Church, but in my stream of Judaism, a group of us are very concerned about the loss of the sermon, not because we're older, but because it's harder to write. For instance, it's a joke I think we got from Christians. How long does it take to prepare an hour sermon? I could talk for an hour right now. How long does it take to prepare a well-honed 15 to 18-minute sermon? Three days. So many rabbis and ministers are into the discussion sermon where you pose a question. And I don't think I'm divulging any secrets. That's a heck of a lot easier than writing five drafts. So I really admire your preaching, Scott and Sam. And I, I, I work hard at it myself, it's not
2: easy.
0: Yeah, that's, that's helpful.
2: The discussion sermon is so dangerous though. I just, get, handing out a mic in the middle of church is just a thing that I, I always try to avoid as much as I possibly can. <laughs> yeah, but you yeah. play like
1: Jerry Springer, for, I don't know if it doesn't end that way, but you know, Phil Donahue, it's the, uh, yeah, right. But, That, I don't know, that may not be happening in your world because I know the sermon is still very much valued in your pulpits, right? Yeah. It is in
0: mine too, but I think it's becoming more of a lost art. Well, it's interesting that it's, while it seems in the moment, it's one directional. Somebody stands there and speaks in that direction and in Episcopal church, we don't expect people to speak back, but in happier, you know, wilder churches, they do. But you're talking about a sense of that person on the back Rowe, whose story you may or may not know. You said,
1: Scott, you were speaking to me, not, oh, that was so profound.
0: And Yeah. And having that matter actually I mean, it's making me think of your comment about this intense preparation. Like, being true to that is not having a flippant conversation. Being true to that is like, I need to attend to what I have to attend to and bring forth the best I can in this context, and the liturgy shapes it and says that placing it in this context,
2: it's No, I, that, that was just a, that was an emphatic yes, that was, that was an agreement. Yeah, I think a lot of preaching is really bad. <laughs> like like a lot of preaching is really bad, and I think a lot of ministers are really exhausted and really don't have a lot of time in their lives to devote to their preaching, which is part of what makes it bad, but I, I think the art of the sermon would maybe be in better shape. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. This is, But it's a thing that a lot of us and a lot of our colleagues aren't really able to devote that much time to, aren't really able to put much of ourselves into. And it shows, and I think it shows in the attendance in our churches. I think it shows in the the sort of state of American religion is, you know, church has to be really good for people to come back. We don't live in an era where you have to go to church where, you know, if, you, if you're the person who doesn't go to church, that's weird. That's, it's a, uh, if anything, sort of the opposite. So you have to be able to give them something of value, something that will affect them and change them every week.
1: You said something, though, really important. I don't want it to come across as though it's the fault of today's minister. She or he has to lead services for babies, be good with elders, and also be charismatic with the teens. I'm told that one of my predecessors, one of the greatest preachers of all time, Rabbi Wax of Blessed Memory, Mm -hmm. who some of you may have known before, another great preacher, Rabbi Danziger, that he would spend three days on his swoons, and he would sit in his rocking chair at the old temple at Poplar, Montgomery, and people would occasionally come in. And so time is so scarce. I wish we had a 30-hour day, and then we'd we'd have six more, but... (laughs) Do you have yeah. time to work on your sermons three days?
2: I don't. Yeah, no. Except for this one today. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we... we <laughs> that sermon took so long. It, worth it. A lot of coffee. It, so much coffee.
0: <laughs> Let's talk about that one. I, affirming all of this, right? That sermons matter, we believe still, and that if church, if, if synagogue, if temple, if these religious communities matter, we, we still at least have drunk the Kool-Aid and believe a sermon is essential to that. You two, what were you thinking? What were you thinking today? You, what, what brought on this idea of actually, let's try well, It was his
1: idea. I thought he was crazy. <laughs> I still think he is, but it, it turned, turned it out right. Wrong.
0: Yeah, I thought, I thought it turned out pretty good.
1: Um, we were just talking, and that abracadabra came out and uh, said, let's talk about I speak, therefore I create, and what are all the extensions of that idea?
0: And it was clear that you didn't get up here and riff today. You attended to this sermon, right? I mean, you attended oh, yeah. this thing. And so, so talk to us about that, especially thinking about sermons matter, looking ahead. We, as people of faith, need to attend to what a sermon means and what a sermon does. And it may not be exactly the same thing when they were 62 minutes long in 1844. So go ahead. Sorry. What were you thinking? How did this process come to be? And why would you, why would you try something like this?
2: I mean, so... Uh... I feel like it's funny, I keep bringing up the slam thing, which I very rarely talk about. But in the slam poetry world, it's, it's common for poets to write together. And it's common to, to you know, do a, a piece that will have, you know, a, a group piece will have, you know, two, three, four, five poets on stage, you know, having different roles. And it's it's a powerful thing to see. It's an amazing thing to see. And I was thinking about that, about how I think so much good art, and I, you know... We don't have to have the, the is preaching art conversation, but uh, I would call it art. So much good art comes out of collaboration, and I was thinking it's such a shame that there's just not a lot of collaborative preaching. That's just not, it's not a thing you would see nearly as often. And uh, I thought, well, let's try it. I'll uh, see if it, Micah might just be crazy enough to do this with me. So you just did your first group you piece, Micah. I'm a slammer. <laughs> yep.
1: Well, thank you. I taught for 25 years at Memphis Theological Seminary, and I once saw a bumper sticker that didn't remind me of the two of you. (laughs) It's not a Jewish bumper sticker, for sure. And I don't think it's the kind of Christian bumper sticker or UU sticker you would put on your car. It said, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. A Jewish bumper sticker, or I imagine an Episcopal or UU bumper sticker would say, God said it. I believe it. Now let's discuss what on earth it means. (laughs) So there's a comfort zone with bright people, which not only he, you, many other peers are who see the sermon as a midrashic opportunity to make whatever your Torah is, if it's Christ, if it's Muhammad, to make your Torah fit the world rather than the world fit your simple God said it, I believe it. That settles it. And that to me, some of the, that, that's what bad preaching is, where mm. does an eye for an eye really justify the death penalty? You may be able to justify it other ways, but the whole point of that is I'm not wearing glasses and you are, so how can we say that? We need systems of justice. Um, so anyway, I, 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 I see the sermon as an opportunity to connect and relate, and I hear that in your preaching. I, I've trolled you a little
0: <laughs> yeah and it's a tension uh isn't it i love the mean? tension between having the text make a claim on me that i wouldn't well, to take me someplace i wouldn't go on my own like have a power so it's not just me spewing yeah right <coughs> um and at the same time i've my and practice has been reading aviva zornberg and it's wow. so i'm just dipping into this the, but the midrash Rashi and these people, they, they had this imagination that seemed to grow faithfully out of the story but go in spectacular directions. How do you all do this in, in your respective traditions? What is it in the practice that takes I have to be true to this thing that I may not want to be true to, and yet I have space to actually imagine it into the world we believe in? Does that make any sense?
1: I'll go first on this because something can, just came to mind. So please, please. I read Aviva Zornberg, too, Z-O-R-N-B-E-R-G, which will change your life in reading scripture exegetically so he and i were talking about ezekiel who i see as absolutely fascinating because you talked about coal on the lips he eats an entire scroll well, that's he, my first lps sermon man he doesn't um just was it isaiah they talk about uh prostitutes you know he actually goes with the paramours. I see him as a Jewish man who had a passion for social justice. We pick out those pieces, but also was interested in ritual. Mm -hmm. And I will look at Jewish sources to understand that we don't understand Ezekiel's vision of the fiery chariot, right? So I asked my friend Sam at Crosstown, what do you think he saw? And Sam said... It's easy. It's one word. I said, what? He said,
2: aliens. <laughs> so there's the tension. There's the tension. Spinning wheel in the sky, man. Yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's a flying saucer. Like, he said, it's aliens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe. There's a tension between this exegesis yeah. and eisegesis. Yeah. And I think you, you have to stay there, right? Because what I've never liked is when people say, no, man, you have to, you have to say exactly what the text says. You can't put your own agenda into it at all. And like, that's, that, that's, yeah, that's not a thing you can do. That's, you are always, you always have your own agenda. You're always doing that. And it's so much better to, to own it and to just acknowledge. So this is what's happening now. I needed the text to say this. So that's what it says.
1: Well, in all seriousness, I mean, every text has a context. I mean, we do know that, for instance, Ezekiel lived uh, before the destruction of the temple and he was with the exiles in Babylon, probably wealthy people who were kicked out by Nebuchadnezzar. So there is a
0: context to all
1: of this. And
0: yeah. we have our own, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the New Testament Ezekiel is strange book of Revelation. Strange images, all, you know, and this moment that I had that changed me with regard to context was in seminary and having Roger Furlow, who was my spiritual director, mentor at the time. And we were at... Chapel, we're reading one of these things, and you know it's just swords and lambs and blood and all this stuff. And um, I'm looking at him, and he's kind of his like leaning his head over, listening, taking it all in. We walk over after after chapel, and I don't know what's going on. And he says, "Scott, what were those people going through? Wow, who wrote that story down? Who needed that kind of imagery to to somehow convey? What were they going through?" which is very different from this flat, literal, what's, here's on the text, you got to believe it, and here's the code to unpack. But actually, no, people we might actually have some trust for needed these sometimes violent, sometimes frightening images to, um, to convey what was going on in their lives and in the world. And that's a different kind of trust of the text than it's written down, God said it, I believe that settles it, that unsettles everything, actually, to, to bring the other people into that conversation. Let's take this too. There's something similar, I think, that goes on with regard to interfaith friendships, both a fidelity to one's own spiritual tradition, right? There's a, we're formed in a context, and then also a conversation that spreads out to say, maybe I could learn something from this tattooed Unitarian guy who doesn't practice in the same way. Talk about maybe where interfaith friendships, relationships started to come into your life? Was it from the beginning that you understood this as a, as a reality? Or was there a moment when you realized, you know, outside my own tradition, there are these are important perspectives I need, to, I need to hear?
2: Let's give credit to where it's due, and I think it's our parents too. Yeah, absolutely. Right? that's exactly what I was going to say, Uh, uh So I am the product of an interfaith marriage. My mom was a UU minister. My, my dad is Jewish. So it's, uh, and it's interesting having a Jewish dad, not a Jewish mom, because that gets really complicated in terms of, do you count? <laughs> you know, I say, I, I, I'm Jewish. Um, <laughs> ish Actually, the first time that Micah and I met, do you remember the first thing you ever said to me before, hi, I'm Micah? You, so I do not. I was interviewing for my job at Church of the River, and I go to Temple Israel, and Micah walks up to me and just sort of looks me up and down and says, you look more Jewish than I do. It was a beard. I'm more like a rabbi. And, <laughs> and I said, Sam title, what were you expecting? And then I got a headlock. It was, uh, and, and we've loved each other ever since. That's um, right. So, yeah, and also in Unitarian Universalism, I mean, a UU congregation is in its way an exercise in interfaith dialogue. I have Christians in my congregation. I have atheists. I'm kind of Jewish-ish. I have Muslims. I have uh, some pagans. Like, we... The, the notion of the, the value in someone else's theology is, I mean, that's kind of baked in. Fear, I think Maya Angelou
1: said this, brings out the worst in us, fear. I really think interfaith dialogue brings out the best in us because it's like going to someone else's birthday party. You know what yours is, but you can deepen your own understanding of this limitless love from God. It's like the Methodist minister, (coughs) I I want to give credit where it's due, who said, I live in a cul-de-sac and I have a son and this son thinks he has the best mother in the world. But then there's a neighbor who also has a son and he says, (laughs) he thinks he has the best mom in the world. And one across the street as a daughter who says, I have the best mom in the world. And the minister poses the question, how can they all be right? And the answer of course is, I hope they are Mm. right. So I, um, I think one of the differences, uh, it's, it's a bit facile to say this, but you have an interfaith congregation. (laughs) We're in a, like a cathedral in here, where I see each of the stained glass windows as a different faith tradition, and they're all beautiful, and they all point to a, a larger God. So in, in one sentence, Judaism would say, the world will become a better place because of our differences, because at the end of Second Chronicles, the end of our Bible, or in Zechariah, everybody goes up to the mountain of God when there's no more. War or disease, as they are, as whoever they are. So, my life, and I think that's the gift of Memphis uh, is are these relationships that are so genuine across uh, across all lines. The only other thing I'll say, though, about my Jewish friend is, uh, when I heard he was title, I didn't see anything about reverend. And I saw the beard. I thought he was the male rabbi in the synagogue. I mean, we're not a gene pool. Jews are not a race. It's a matter of consent, not descent. And um, I just love learning from my episcopal friends, my Catholic friends, my Muslim friends. It makes me a better Jew. I think you could be you could become more particular with your universality and have a greater appreciation of the universal. With the particular, it's it's the syncretism that bothers me. These Messianic Judaism, we're all Messianic Jews, but the ones who call themselves Jews for Jesus, that's like kosher pork or, you know, (laughs) if a Christian becomes a Mormon, you don't call them Christians for Smith. You know, there's an integrity to the cross. You don't bend it and say it's a star. Um, It's an insult to the integrity of of both. So I, I love interfaith just not syncretism.
0: Yeah, that's helpful. (laughs)
1: What about you? I mean, what do you love about it? But Alan,
0: you I don't like us. it.
2: I'm, I'm against yeah, it. Yeah, I thought so. They're forcing you to do this, it's in your contract because the rector has to asked <laughs> me do interfaith. If it was up to him, we wouldn't even be here. That's now. right, that's right. right yeah, let's go. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, let's go.
0: yeah, I agree. I, I, this is really helpful for you to mention that the difference between syncretism and maybe a cafeteria I'll have a little of this and a little of that, but a, or, a practice that has a center to it. And I might actually, I grew up in a more evangelical, more fundamentalist milieu that one of the gifts of that is not this. It's not, there wasn't good interfaith. That's, that wasn't a sense. It was like there were, we're on the inside and, and people on the outside, we love people, but we need to find a way to bring them in. And that doesn't work with, for me anymore. I don't think it's scriptural. But one thing it does is it is about attending to the integrity of this way of being in the world as a community. And so it moves so f- further over in the direction you're talking about, and when you say, I think, Mike it makes me a better Jew, it makes my practice be cohere, be more consistent, be, have more integrity, um, there, w- there is a value of that. And I feel like I do need friends who tend to be more conservative about their practice of Christianity to keep me where I need to be. What, what was hard was that it, it cut off these other relationships that I've come to depend on. And actually... I heard a wonderful talk about this years ago in seminary by Rowan Williams, who is the Archbishop of Canterbury. He pushed so far to say he thinks a fruitful interfaith relationship and dialogue should not be limited to the things we agree about. Absolutely. Because what real, deep, meaningful relationship that you have in your life only talks about the things you agree about? And he said, I actually think my Jewish brothers and sisters should press me and say, do you believe God is one? You don't talk like it sometimes. And a, and a deep, meaningful, trusting relationship could actually, could actually go the places where the, at least the language in our different traditions seems to pull at each other and that there would be depth to relationship that could, that could happen. Is that possible? Have you experienced that?
1: Barbara Brown Taylor's book <clears throat> explicates exactly what you're saying. I love what you're saying don't you?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it's not dialogue if you're just kind of patting each other on the back. I mean, that's not, that's not meaningful. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know,
1: marriage. You don't want someone who makes you happy. Of course, you want someone who makes you better. Because if they make you better, you'll also be happy. But if you're just happy, and so that's what I love about deep dialogue or yeah. deep disagreement yeah. and wrestling rather than A rabbi, a minister, and a priest giving a benediction at a chicken dinner. That was really a big deal with Will Herberg's Protestant Catholic (laughs) Jew, you know, back in the 50s. But uh, I think we're getting deeper, and we ought to. With holy envy, as she says.
0: Yeah, that's Barbara's term. Yeah. And it seems like it depends on some trust, some deepening, deepening trust to be able to go into different places with the dialogue, with the friendship. We have to.
2: Oh, yeah. And it involves, and therefore, there's, there's an element of healing, right? There's an element of, you know, part of, if we have religious groups that have been at odds, right? And we are part of groups that have been at odds. We also need to not just say, well, now everything's fine immediately. So we're, we're, we're all gonna now tell me about you and I'll tell you about me, right? Like it, it, it necessitates, <laughs> you know, pulling out the dirty laundry sometimes and sort of being able to get that handled. Am I making Mm -hmm. sense? Mm
0: -hmm.
2: You're you're reminding me of two
1: unfortunate interfaith incidents I had um, in Memphis over the last 30 years, but because of the trust, I was able to correct. The first was I was on sabbatical for a few months But unfortunately, I was watching Sunday morning television live from a very large church in Memphis with a huge audience. And the pastor, instead of extolling Christianity, used Judaism as the whipping post that Hmm. God was only a distant father. But... Jesus introduced God as a more uh, imminent friend. So I knew him and I said, who taught you that in seminary? I'll give you 50 Hebrew words about God as a sister, a friend, a mother. And I said, you could do a lot of damage because I was on a treadmill and you have 4,000 people in your congregation. The other one was where I, around this time for Passover, I was invited to this large church in Memphis to speak about the symbols of Passover. So I go into the adult education class, and they said, oh, another rabbi, we just heard about Passover last week. I said, tell me what you learned. They said, well, you know the flatbread, that matzah? And I said, yes. I I have it here, I brought a show and tell. I said, do you know what it symbolizes? And, And they said, yeah. this." Rabbi, pastor came last week and told it, it looks like the stripes of Jesus on the cross. And I said, it's three words, it's freedom from slavery. So I felt close enough to the senior pastor there who was conservative to say, forget about learning about Judaism from a Jew versus someone who doesn't, but let's stay in our lanes. Like I wanna know New Testament from you. Uh, but I think it's when interfaith becomes supersessionist
0: yeah.
2: that it's tragic. Yeah. And it can take a long time to heal. I mean, are we going to bring up the... Can I, can I bring up... I never know where you're going. And I, <laughs> there are a lot of people here. Is this going to be okay? What are you going to say? Is this going to be it's... okay? So my penultimate predecessor was a guy named James Madison Barr. And your predecessor was, now you know where I'm going with this, Rabbi Wax. I think it's okay. Yeah, no, there was uh, no love lost between James Madison Barr and Rabbi Wax. Those two guys had uh, nothing good to say about each other. Explain why, please. uh, Because James Madison Barr was absolutely on the wrong side of the civil rights movement and said a lot of really deeply problematic things. So Rabbi Wax was absolutely right to be wary of him. But it means something now for the minister of Church of the River and the rabbi of Temple Israel to be here on this chancel together. It it, it means something from an interfaith perspective as well as from an institutional perspective. It means something for the three of us to be here having this conversation. Well, Calvary was always on the right side.
1: (laughs) 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 No, it does. Thank you.
2: No, you're right.
1: This moment is precious. You're right, given the history.
2: Yeah. No question. No question. You know, and, and, you know, we need to talk about, there's people in my congregation who can tell you, and I believe them, that James Madison Barr did really beautiful, meaningful ministry in their lives. And still, we, we need to be able to talk about. Facing what, history what, and what was in the parking lot. Right. And why, 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 these, why these things are fraught. Amen.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, as we think about this series, this Lenten preaching, it's 99th year. So we're turning toward another hundred, we hope. And we talked a little bit about preaching earlier. It's grown into a more interfaith. I I will tell a story quickly that if you read the history of Calvary, going back to the early 20th century, there was a tradition that started uh, bringing an American flag in. And there was a poem written by the rector that referred to the Crusades and people kneeling at the altar of Calvary in Muslim blood wow. in their chain mail. So that's part of our history is that people were, were writing in these just a century ago. So we are not there at all. Come to this century uh, a few years ago on the day that there was a shooting in New Zealand at the mosque. Um, it was Lenten Lent preaching series and... Um, Omid Safi was preaching, and that, the news came that morning that someone had walked up to the synagogue, was greeted in, in peace, as one would always be, and then committed this horrible crime. Omid stepped up into that pulpit an hour or two after that and preached a stunning sermon about what that brought forth in him. So part of telling the whole story is that we have traditions that are complicated and have complicated stories like all of our families do, but we can, we can, we can move into different places. So, I got sidetracked telling that story, but question going forward. So, we've become a more interfaith, even just series, than we were once upon a time. What do we need to attend to going forward to make sure this Lenten preaching series matters?
2: I used to go to a, uh, a slam show uh, at Ralph's Rock Diner in Worcester, Massachusetts. And I called it the Dirty Gerund. And what was amazing is there would be slam poets who would, you know, get up and do their thing, but it was just part of the culture of the show that people would get up and do something completely bizarre. You know, there was a guy who would, called They Might Be Puppets, who had these two parrot puppets, and he would play songs by the band They Might Be Giants, and the puppets would lip-sync the song, and that was his act. And there was a, a guy who would do, you know, march in place and, and uh, sing commercials from the 90s. I, I guess my, my point is having, you know. Puppets? The, puppets? Yeah, puppets okay. is what you need. Um, having them there, it's what made the poetry good. Bringing in an element of the unexpected. Bringing in an element of we are going to have the thing that, that you love, but also something weird might happen. Something you don't expect might happen. I think that's, that's how we do good church. And all you need to do to matter is to do good church. Yeah, I think it also comes back to
1: what Ray Charles said about music. I don't care what kind it is, as long as it's good. Yeah. And back, to, we, we, we know good preaching when we hear it. It's, um, there are singers for instance, even though I listened to them on the way down, If James Taylor's performing, I will go see him live. If Judy Collins is performing, I would go see her. She's still doing it. He's still doing it. Mm -hmm. Paul McCartney stays up later than I do. Now, there are (laughs) singers who should hang it up. I mean, another Jew named Robert Zimmerman, Bob Dylan's (laughs) real name. We never could understand him. Uh, He's a poet. You don't know what you're getting right now. So I met someone this week who told me I met Dan Matthews. Now, for those listening and don't know, this is the rector of Trinity Church Emeritus, who I guess has been coming here uh, a long time.
0: 50. This was the 50th year since he showed up first. For and
1: he is a man of grace. I met him when I started here 22 years ago. And he's the kind of preacher who will stop when it's time for him to stop. But he still got it. And I would just say, yeah, bring the puppets, (laughs) but realize how rare this is. And there still are preachers who not only value preaching, but there's an audience for anything good, whether it's music, art, poetry, and even this. So I trust not only my brothers and sisters, I trust Calvary to discern that in a high-minded way, as you always have for 99 years.
0: Amen. Thank you too for being with us tonight. Dialogue is a podcast of Calvary's Lenten Preaching series, a 99-year-old tradition that invites wise and inspiring speakers into our pulpit during the season of Lent and onto our podcast Now Beyond. Dialogues produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion. Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary and Heidi Rupke, Lenten Preaching Series coordinator, and Sam Bryant, our sound engineer, and thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about the home of dialogue in the Lenten preaching series, Calvary Episcopal Church is an eclectic bunch of Christian people. We don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them. And that God calls us out of our estrangements and conflicts into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to Dialogue at calvarymemphisorg slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee. Thank you all.